This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello there, art curious folks. Jennifer here, and I hope that you are enjoying your time between our current seasons of Art Curious. As promised, I'm back in your feed today with a super fun bonus episode from our recent live show captured on Fireside. And today's conversation is my chat with Lillian Milgram, who is an artist and an author whose recent novel chronicles the real-life story of Gustave Courbet's enticing, shocking, and stunning work, L'Origine du Monde, or The Origin of the World. You might remember this work if you're a longtime listener of Art Curious because we ended our year-long season on shock art by discussing this very piece in episode number 53. This is a fun, fascinating, and intriguing book, so come for Courbet and stay for Lillian Milgram's own story about being the very first authorized copyist of Courbet's masterpiece. In the show notes and the blog post for today's episode, I will include a link so that you can order L'Origine. And remember to join us on a future episode of Art Curious Live on Fireside. And as always, you can register today for a free Fireside account using my link, firesidechat.com slash Jennifer Dassel. And now, on with the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Art Curious Live on Fireside. My name is Jennifer Dassel. I am the host of the Art Curious podcast, which explores what I like to call the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. And on Fireside, I love to get to know artists, authors, art historians, and anybody who has created some amazing work about the world of art. And so I am so excited to be here and joined by Lillian Milgram today. Lillian, welcome to Art Curious Live. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Jennifer. You don't know how excited I am because I am such a fan of Art Curious podcast that it feels like I'm, I've just hit the jackpot. <laughs> oh my gosh, you're so kind. And you really have been a, such an engaged and wonderful listener for the past few years now. You've yeah. been reaching out to me and you were telling me about the publication of your novel, which we are finally here and able to talk about today. It's called L'Origine. It is about the secret life of the world's most erotic masterpiece. So I want to do a little quick introduction of you for our audience today, and then also to just share with everybody that in the little fortune cookie app on Fireside right now, there is a link to buy your copy today. So Lillian Milgram is Paris-born and internationally acclaimed artist and an award-winning author. She lives with her husband in the greater Washington, D.C. area, and she holds two degrees from Melbourne University and an associate degree from the Academy of Art in San Francisco. She exhibits her artwork around the world, and she is the recipient of multiple awards and residencies. In 2011, she became the first authorized copyist of Gustave Courbet's controversial painting L'Origine du Monde, The Origin of the World, which hangs in the Orsay Museum in Paris. 
Milgram spent a decade writing and researching L'Origine, and her debut novel has snagged no less than six literary honors, including the Publishers Weekly 2021 U.S. Book Award for Best Adult Fiction. Lillian, I, I loved this book, and I'm so excited to have you on here. So before we really dig into the, the nitty gritty of this book and the work of art in general, I do want to say if you could please, um, I can't always assume that everybody knows art history very well if they listen to Art Curious as the podcast and also this show here on Fireside is hopefully for anyone regardless of how much they know about art. So could you be able to describe this Gustave Courbet painting for us? Well, that's, that's <laughs> not, it, the reason I'm laughing is it's not a usual work of art. And once you see this work of art, you will um, not readily forget it. It is a very controversial and celebrated work of art painted in 1866 by Gustave Courbet. And it is called L'Origine du Monde, The Origin of the World. So if you keep in mind the title and then you marry that to an image of a close-up of a woman's uh, exposed genitals, just that part of the woman's anatomy, it really sort of adds to the meaning of what that is, the origin of the world. And that is why it's such a controversial painting, apart from the beauty of, of, the, of the work itself and the subject. But when you marry that, as I said, to the title, it, it, it gives you quite a punch. And actually, the very first um, paragraph of my prologue in the book describes the painting. Would you like me to read that? I would. Please do. Okay. So it's just a paragraph, but this is how the book starts. And this is how I first felt about the painting when I saw it. So I think it's worthwhile reading it. Paris, winter 2011, the Orsay Museum. It stopped me dead in my tracks. Granted, I was in Paris. But nonetheless, this wasn't something you'd expect to see in one of the most celebrated museums in the world. Prominently displayed on its own dedicated wall and hanging at eye level was a realistically rendered, X-rated, peep-show perspective of a woman's exposed genitals. Not a fig leaf in sight. The parted thighs drew my eye towards the riotous pubic bush, just left of dead center. The vulva was split asunder by a pellet knife slash of scarlet. A shadowed ravine divided the buttocks into two creamy rounded orbs, and only a single breast, crested by a blush-colored nipple, peeked out from beneath rumpled sheets. No face, no legs, no arms, just lady bits. And there you have it. That's the painting. You asked me. <laughs> I love that. And one of the things that I loved about the way that you begin the book is that prologue, because you make us understand your perspective when you came in front of that painting, just like you said, that has stopped you dead in your tracks. We feel like we are right absolutely there with you at the Orsay standing in front of it. So I, it, I mentioned this in the introduction that you were the first copyist who was That's able right. to receive official permission to paint a copy of this work of art. You mentioned the whole story in your prologue, which is one of, I think, the most fascinating stories that you actually share in the book is your own. Could you tell us a little bit about that, about how you decided to come to become this copyist and how this was the work of art that you opted to choose? What's really interesting is that I never intended 
to copy a painting. I had never copied a painting before. It never really appealed to me to copy a painting, but I was in Paris on an artist residency and I knew that in general terms, creatively explore uh, female sexuality and aging and the female body. And of course, to get inspiration, I usually go to galleries and museums. I think you, you would greatly understand that point. And um, I came across Courbet's painting and it just spoke to me. I couldn't take my eyes off it. I just felt like this was the most unapologetic painting of a woman. And when you marry it again, I keep repeating this, to the origin of the world, I knew that there was something there for me and I was just totally smitten. And I went about in a very... Uh, <laughs> sort of uh, trying to get uh, authorization, which normally takes months, but I sort of wormed my way in and I got the authorization almost overnight. I think that's absolutely incredible. And how was that experience? I mean, you write about it so lovingly in the book, but what was it like to actually sit in front of this work of art day after day? Because you yourself becomes part of that spectacle. It's almost like you become a performer while you are creating exactly the work of art. Right. Yes, it was exactly that. What I didn't think through when I asked permission to paint, I really didn't think through what it meant to paint a painting like this in full view in public. And it's it it had a it had a sort of a I started off being uh, I would say like almost embarrassed and very self conscious, and then it moved slowly into becoming identifying with the painting and becoming very proud of, of my sexuality, of, of being a woman. It was liberating. It was empowering. So it went through a genesis, sort of a, an entire change in the way that I felt about it. And also I had to get into how he painted it, which to me as an artist was fascinating because, of course, I was analyzing every single millimeter of that painting. You know, what did he use as an underpainting? trying to understand it and working with my few acrylics, you know, instead of these luscious, beautiful uh, oils that he works with. But I think I have to say I did a pretty, pretty good job. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Just from the images that I'm able to see both in the back of your book for your author image and also image on your website. I mean, it looks quite stunning. I myself am not an artist. And so I'm always in awe of people who are able to create stunning works of art, regardless. But being able to create a copy of a work of art is an entirely different and fascinating and very difficult skill. So bravo. Incredible. Thank you. It was very difficult. And people say, oh, it took you six weeks. Well, it barely, I barely made it because it really does take all that time to keep calibrating it and, and putting new glazes over it and looking at how he did it and standing back and going forwards. Not to mention the fact that I was constantly interrupted in a good way by people who were passing by and were very curious about what I was doing and wanted to share their their feelings about the painting, which really you either love it or you hate it, but you really can't have uh, uh, nonchalant about it. 
Absolutely. I would say even in my own family, you know, I don't come from a family of art lovers, but I do come from a family of travelers. And so many members of my family at least had been to the Musée d'Orsay and at least knew of this painting. And that's one that people have continually come to me over the years to say, what is this painting about? Why would you choose to paint this? And it's been really fascinating because you're right. No one seems to want or or can even even be able to be neutral about it. It is striking and shocking and it has an incredible power. And I wanted to ask that as a way to transition into your decision to create a historical novel around this, because as you mentioned, you did not come to Paris with the idea that this was going to be the center of your work. And it also didn't leave you when your residency was done. Could you tell us a little bit about that journey? I'm glad you asked about that because I think that one of the motivations once I started writing the book was to dispel the the notion that Gustave Courbet was some sort of pervert or that he just <laughs> that he just wanted to paint this for shock value. No, the right. painting was not intended to be viewed by millions of people in one of the most venerable museums in the world. It was actually a, a private commission in 1866. Uh, it was commissioned by Khalil Bey, who was an Ottoman diplomat, and he had a pension for erotic art. So that's the way it started. And then it was so scandalous, it was kept hidden for 150 years, passed from, from hand to hand amongst male collectors. And what is so fascinating that fascinated me and that I felt that I had something to say is we all have spoken about male gaze. This was definitely a painting painted for male gaze, but here I was as a woman standing in for front the of male gaze. Right. And yes. here I was looking at it through the eyes of a, of a woman, recreating it as a woman. And I, I just got home and I, I couldn't stop thinking about delving into its history. And to my surprise and delight, <laughs> If I discovered that its history was as incredible as the painting itself and the story just had to be told. And so that's why I wrote the book. I think it's so fascinating because I think of it almost as if it's a biography of the piece, because we do follow the work through time across Europe and yes. into those different hands that you mentioned. And I wanted to ask you a couple of questions, actually. The first is, how did you choose who and what to include? Because you're, again, dealing with many characters, um, famous characters, famous people, and you're also dealing with an incredible swath of 150 plus years of history. How did you decide what you wanted to tell and what you had to cut? What a great question again, because <laughs> it wasn't, it, it didn't start out like that. I thought that I was going to write a book that had me alternating chapters between my experience in Paris and Courbet's experience, as if I was like walking in his footsteps sort of Ooh, thing. Yeah. Yeah, that would have, that was started off well, but then what happens when he dies? Because the painting kept on going and had a life of its own, which art does, as we know, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> art oh, is long and life that. is short. So I thought, no, that's not the way to go. And what I really wanted to tell the story of was a, the story of the painting. But I was hesitant to make the painting the protagonist, but that's what I chose in the end. And so it wasn't a matter of choosing who to put in there. I decided to, 
to write a book that was very engaging and not as a biography, but more as a novel and all the hands it passed through. So I really, history sort of directed me. And I would say, if you look at the back of the book, which I'm sure you probably did, there's a huge long list, a bibliography of all the French mm -hmm. books I've, written, I've read about this and all the, all the biographies and the academic treatises. So I would say 85% of the book is actually based on first-hand sources or historical uh, research. However, along the timeline of the painting, you can imagine 150 years, there were gaps and that was my, my greatest challenge. And I really did a lot of research to try to match point A and point B when there was a gap of, you know, let's say 20, 30 years, Wh where was that painting? What happened to it? And that, that's why it's a historical fiction, because I sort of filled in the gaps with, you know, very plausible conjecture, I would say. Yes. And I wanted to ask you about that, actually. You, you've teed me up so perfectly here. I wanted to ask about what people or scenes did you invent? Because I knew some of the history and I, sort of, I suppose surmised some of the areas where maybe you were, were teeing up the next portion, but so much of it happened. So I wanted to know what did you invent? What was your your historical <laughs> fiction part. <laughs> ah, okay. So if you're comfortable revealing that, yes. I suppose. <laughs> of course, of course. So there was a, there was a few, um, for example, when Khalil Bey, the Ottoman diplomat that I mentioned earlier, when he had to leave Paris, he, he had a huge collection of erotica and beautiful paintings by some of the most famous artists of the time. He lost everything in gambling and he had to leave with his tail between his legs. He had to leave Paris, sell off his collection and was called back to Constantinople. But he took that one painting with him, L'Origine du Monde, and when he got to Constantinople, he married a princess. This I did not make up. <laughs> so oh, I yes. figured somehow the painting got back to Paris and he did too as an ambassador. But there was a murky time in there about what happened to the painting when he was in Constantinople. How come he went back to Paris on his own and how did it get into the hands of a famous art dealer? So I imagined because I read up a lot about what the life of women was like uh, in Constantinople at the time. And his wife, uh, the princess, was very cloistered. And so if she had by accident come across this painting, that would have just been horrendous and I think would have made a real uh, chasm, you know, in their marriage. And so I sort of elaborated on that and on, on what that painting's impact might have been on them and then how he sort of took it back with him to Paris, which there's no record of that, but it just made sense to me because he was recalled there for a short while uh, for diplomatic reasons. Can't get enough L'Origine? Neither can I. And luckily, there's a lot more coming. So please support us by listening and supporting our sponsors, and we'll be right back. Bombas's mission is simple. Make the most comfortable clothes ever and match every item sold with an equal item donated. So when you buy Bombas, you're also giving to someone in need. 
Bombas designed their socks, shirts, and underwear to be the clothes you can't wait to put on every day. Everything they make is so soft, seamless, tagless, and has a luxuriously cozy feel. They are made from super soft materials like merino wool and pima cotton and even cashmere, which makes them the perfect cozy winter layers. There's a pair of Bombas socks for everything you do, and they come in tons of options, like comfy performance styles for every sport and activity that gets you moving. I personally love their ankle-length running socks, and their merino wool socks are just delightful. Delightful, I am telling you. And Bombas isn't just socks. It's also luxuriously smooth, tag-free t-shirts and underwear with a barely-there feel that might even make you forget that they're even there. In a good way, of course. Combined, all of these, socks, underwear, and t-shirts, they are the three most requested clothing items at homeless shelters. And that's why Bombas donates one for every item you buy. So far, Bombas customers like you have helped to donate over 50 million items of essential clothing. Go to bombas.com slash artcurious and get 20% off any purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash artcurious for 20% off. Bombas.com slash artcurious. I don't know if it's the accents or the tea or the driving on the wrong side of the road, but no matter what it is, I love British TV. And I'm getting my fill thanks to Acorn TV. Acorn TV is the largest commercial-free British streaming service that features compelling stories, exclusive premieres, and originals you won't find anywhere else. Acorn has hundreds of exclusive shows from around the world, including award-winning mysteries, dramas, comedies, history, and so much more. The series that you find on Acorn TV are cleverly written, visually striking, and feature renowned actors and hosts like David Tennant and Mary Berry. I'm especially excited to begin binging series two of Queens of Mystery, the Acorn TV original that follows the adventures of three crime-writing sisters and their 28-year-old detective niece. Using their knowledge of crime, both real-world and fictional, together they solve murders in a picturesque English region of Wildmarsh. The Los Angeles Times calls it a surefire crowd pleaser, and for someone who loves a good cozy mystery like myself, it will be a must watch. With Acorn TV, you can get thousands of hours of new, enthralling content for a fraction of the cost compared to most streaming services at just $5.99 a month. I stream it on my Roku or directly on my phone or tablet with the Acorn TV app, so watching is so easy and so fun. With Acorn TV, I always get my British fix, and you can too. Try Acorn TV free for 30 days by going to acorn.tv and using my promo code ARTCURIOUS. But you have to enter the promo code all in lowercase letters. That's A-C-O-R-N dot TV, promo code ARTCURIOUS, lowercase, to get your first 30 days for free. Acorn.tv, code ARTCURIOUS. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. 
what were your favorite characters to write? Because as you mentioned, so many of these are real people, people who lived and held and you know got to breathe around this painting. Did you yes. have anybody in particular who was your favorite to, to picture and imagine and to write about? You know, it's probably like most authors, we all love our characters in the end, they become our friends and our family. But I have to say, no one, no one stole my heart more than Gustave Courbet himself. He yes. just, I just fell in love with him, and and it doesn't hurt that that he looks like, uh, you know, a famous. Uh, oh, of course, I've forgotten who. Oh my God, <laughs> I it on the tip of my tongue. I will get there. But Gustave Courbet was, let's say, charming, belligerent, yes. egotistic driven, charismatic, bold, obnoxious. <laughs> he had it all. And the reason yeah. I fell in love with him is because right at the beginning of my research, oh, Johnny Depp, that's who it is, sorry, Johnny Depp. Oh, yes. <laughs> right at the Definitely. beginning of my research, I picked up a 700-page compendium of letters, of his letters. He was a prolific letter writer. And I read that at least three times. I mean, he was fascinating. He made me laugh. He made me cry. He just, he, he's just an incredible, he was an incredible person. He had vision from the word go. And it's a huge piece. It's, it's a huge book. In fact, every time I pick it up, I have to grunt because <laughs> it probably weighs about five pounds. And I actually have it here on my desk. Do you want me to just read I, one or two things from his letters just to, to show a little bit of his character in his own words. I absolutely would love it. Please do. Okay, so let's say I'll start with uh, just something. Yes, he was. <laughs> he always went against the grain. He hated any type of authority. So when he was in school, they sent his parents sent him off to a boarding school, and he just did not want to be there. So this is a letter to his family in 1837. He was young. I think he was 17. I was touched by the letter you wrote me, but I cannot stay, no matter what. Besides, if I stayed, I would be losing a year and you would be losing 1,000 francs. You might as well throw them in the water. Since I've been here, I have not yet opened a book. I cannot do a thing. No one gives a damn about me anywhere. Everyone tells me I cannot keep up. If I'm to be an exception to every rule in every way, I'm off to pursue my destiny. I mean, really? Isn't that amazing? That's fantastic. I, and I love that you're saying, you know, he was so uh, charming, but, you know, so willful and imaginative and forceful, but so charismatic. I think that letter that you've chosen, it so perfectly fits all of that. And I can imagine that it must have been hard to resist him on so many different levels, not only, you know, as as a woman, as an art collector. Uh, it, it certainly seems like from the historical document documentation, both in your book and also a lot of the resources that you're talking about, that just like with L'Origine itself, people didn't have neutral feelings about him in general. Is that correct? (laughs) That is such an understatement. He made a lot of enemies. And unfortunately, that that was his demise. And in the end, he died alone and sick uh, in exile in Switzerland. So it was was actually very tragic. But there's one more um, sentence I'd like to read. Which, which shows why I also admired him so much as an artist, because he says here in 1847, that's already once he got to Paris and was finding his own way and his own style. 
And we have to remember, as you have often said in in your podcast and explain to people that at that time, artists just couldn't paint what they wanted to paint. It was totally different. It was very, very closely uh, delineated what you could paint, how you could, how you should paint. And he just didn't want a bar of that. He writes here to his family again. In past years, when I had less of a style of my own and was still painting somewhat like them, they accepted me. But now that I am myself, I can no longer expect that. It's just incredible. He had such insight and he wasn't accepted into, you know, some of the salons, which was the place to be shown because Mm -hmm. he defied all the rules. And I think that that's what absolutely drew me to him even before I, I I you know when I saw the painting obviously I knew it was somebody who went, who was a rule breaker and a groundbreaker but reading his letters absolutely you know just blew me away absolutely tell me a little bit about the research process so you mentioned this amazing giant tome of letters that you have at your disposal. What other ways did you go about the historical documentation? Did you have any uh, barriers along the way or any hiccups to going through and finding the details for the story? Well, I think that uh, the barrier that I did not have, but that some someone else might have had, is that I was born in France, as you mentioned, and so I read and speak French. Therefore, most of most of the research I did and the books I read were in French. So I was very fortunate. And I feel like, uh, what's that expression? You know, I read it so that you don't have to. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so I did all that research in French and then wrote this sort of very entertaining and, and um, enlightening book about uh, Gustave Courbet and his very contentious painting in English. And what's interesting is now I'm trying to, my, my um, foreign agent is trying to, to get the French version out in France, which I think will be, you know, a, very popular, but Absolutely. now it have to be translated into French. So I'm, I'm sort of dealing with that at the moment. Are you doing the translation yourself? No, because my okay. French is not, not good enough anymore. I left when I was a child. So even though I read fluently and I can speak, I would never take on a project like that. I just couldn't. But um, as far as like uh, going back to the research of it, there is one expert in uh, France on uh, Courbet and specifically on L'Origine du Monde who actually walked the entire, let's say, uh, path of the painting. His name is Thierry Sabatier. Have you heard of him, Jennifer? I haven't, I don't think. Right. He's a very famous historian uh, art historian in France, and he writes a column, I think, in Le Monde. And I read everything he he wrote. That was a, a big start for me. But again, it was, you know, a, a biographical novel, uh, not a novel, a biographical book. And mm-hmm. so to me, I did not want to write a book like that. I wanted to have the people speaking and laughing and making love and, and crying and just bringing everything alive, because I felt that that's the way that to introduce especially English-speaking readers to this uh, artist and to this particular painting and and sort of uh, turn a different light on it, if you will. There's more coming, so we'll be right back. Hunting down answers to your questions can be so rewarding. But when it comes to hiring, you don't always have as much time as you'd like to spend finding those great candidates with all the right skills. 
That's why there's Indeed, the best hiring partner your team can get. If you're hiring, you need Indeed, because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process. Find great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Indeed Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates with resumes on Indeed that match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Plus, you only pay for quality applications that meet your must-have requirements. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy. According to Comscore, Indeed is the number one job site worldwide. And Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest in 2019. Join the more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com art. Offer valid through March 31st. Go to Indeed.com art to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. Indeed.com art. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. After a long day, I just want to curl up on the couch and get lost in a gripping story with characters I can love and hate. Is that too much to ask? I certainly don't think so. And thanks to Sundance Now, I always have something to watch that's binge-worthy and that I can be obsessed with. Sundance Now is an ad-free streaming service created by AMC Networks for people who obsess over riveting storytelling and fresh perspectives. Sundance Now has original prestige dramas, international thrillers, and bone-chilling true crime shows. Every show is a sleek production with sexy lead characters. They've got shows like the hit British series A Discovery of Witches. This is the final season of the fan-favorite fantasy series based on the All Souls trilogy by Deb Harkness. And it is the perfect mix of period drama, romance, and edge-of-your-seat thriller. The Los Angeles Times calls A Discovery of Witches elegant and satisfying, and TV Guide proclaims it pure catnip for fans of this genre. And for an immersive and provoking series, I truly couldn't ask for more. You can stream Sundance now on all your favorite devices for as low as $4.99 a month. Just download the app or watch online and discover exclusive shows from around the world instantly. I found my next TV obsession on Sundance Now, and you will too. Try Sundance Now free for 30 days by going to SundanceNow.com and using the promo code ARTCURIOUS. That's SundanceNow.com, code ARTCURIOUS, one word, for 30 days of free streaming. SundanceNow.com, code ARTCURIOUS. I wanted to ask you, I, I know that we mentioned that you've won some amazing awards for this book. Yeah. What has the response been when you mention or when people understand what this work of art yourself, your book is a work of art. What is it about when you talk about this painting? What has the response been? It's it's been it's been mixed, and that's why I was so delighted. I, I never imagined I would get one prize because first of all, when I was at the museum painting, 
you know, most of the American tourists who came by were pretty horrified and shocked by the painting, more so than their European counterparts, I would say. Sure. But, yeah. So when I wanted to write this, I specifically didn't want to write it to shock people. I wanted to to educate and to and to have people understand the genesis of this painting, why he painted this painting, what happened to it, and what it actually says about about women, you know, in the past century and a half. It's also about women's history and, and society's uh, um, attitude towards female nudity. So it's all that rolled into one. That was wonderful. I, I was going to even further that question to ask you about how this piece is still so relevant today. And in, in far as far as the Orsay is concerned, I think this is still one of the most iconic and most relevant paintings in their collection. But I think you've answered that already in just talking about the experience of women and how women are perceived, how we perceive ourselves and our bodies and how we've been received in the last 100 and 150 years has changed so much. And you're right, the way that we still react to this right. work of art still sell, says so much about various cultures. You're specifically talking about the difference between Americans and Europeans. And I myself have had that experience where I love that you're talking about in, in your prologue, you mentioned, a, I believe it's a grandmother speaking with the granddaughter and saying, yes. oh, that is that is how you came into the world. And this little girl got a little, <laughs> so irate and saying, no, maman had a, a C-section. And that made me laugh out loud. <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I, you couldn't make that stuff up, you know. But in answer to people who, who who have said, you know, that that painting doesn't belong in a museum, I I think it belongs there precisely because it's an example of one artist's personal battle against established mores and boundaries. And you know what? As an artist, as a contemporary artist, I owe the likes of Gustave Courbet an enormous debt. I mean, he sort of forged the road to freedom of expression. Without people yes. doing that in the past, we, we just couldn't have built on that. We'd still be doing exactly what the Académie des Beaux-Arts would be telling us to paint. It's true. And I think that's something that is also so interesting about your perspective, is that you are coming to this as an artist, as someone who has this art background. So you are in many ways enabling us to understand the process. That was one of the questions in the back of your book. You have this wonderful uh, section of questions for readers, for book clubs or readers guides. And the one of the questions was about the process of art, of creating art, of process of copying. And yeah. I think that is so key because it's very different from understanding it from a visitor's point of view, from a curator's point of view, an educator, a child. It's all a different way of understanding and perceiving a work of art. So it was really fascinating to have that perspective of your background as a contemporary artist in there. And I'm actually very thrilled. It only occurred to me after I came back that there's probably no one alive today that has spent as much time in front of this painting as I have. And I started like jumping around the house. I'm going, oh my God, you know, I can't think of anyone else who has spent six weeks staring at this painting. Can you? I mean, I no. just don't think it's happened. Well, that so raises you automatically to the level of you are an expert. You are oh, literally you an expert on this painting. And that's so cool. 
it, it, it really is. It really is. And even the um, the head of the Bureau de Copies, the copyist uh, department, when I finished, she was just delighted. You know, she had warned me. She said, do you know what you're getting into? And I said, oh, well, we, we, of course, you know. But I didn't really. And then at the end, she just was delighted. She 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 said, I never expected you, A, to, to go through with it, and B, to, to produce such a beautiful painting. So I feel... I feel very, very, very delighted about the whole thing. <laughs> Understandably. No, it's it's quite amazing. And then, of course, the book coming as a natural outgrowth of that, I think, is so wonderful. Now, you end the book, but I would love for our listeners to, A, buy the book, but also to hear your experience, because you end with a little letter to the painting as you return to see it in 2019. What was it like to go back and revisit uh, the work in person after being away for so long and working on this book and digging so deeply into the painting's history? It might sound strange to people who have not had the experience that I had with this painting, but it it was extremely emotional Mm -hmm. because I feel extremely protective of this painting. That's what happened over the course of the six weeks when people would sort of snicker at it or something like that. I I got sort of offended on behalf of the painting. Mm-hmm. And when I saw it again, it was like seeing an old friend and we had a special bond. It just wasn't, it was, it was not just a painting to me anymore. It had really, uh, let's say, it enlarged my view of myself as an artist, myself as a woman, and taken me on this journey to become an author, even though that I, ha- I have written a lot of articles on art, I never imagined that I would spend 10 years writing a book. So I have so much to be grateful for, for, for you know, just bumping into this painting. I'm, I'm just grateful and I, I think it will always hold a very special place in, in my heart. Understandably so. Do you have one more section of your book that you would like to read for us? Um, yes, as I said, it, it goes from from uh, collector to collector, and in the background, all these things are going on in the world, world wars and revolutions. So it was a very exciting 150 years. So I'm going to read about um, a Hungarian baron who was uh, one of the collectors. So I'll start, and it's um, let's see. Excuse the rattling of my book. It's in the fall of 1848. Ferenc had given up hope of ever retrieving his scattered treasures and was therefore justifiably skeptical that within a matter of hours, he would be reunited with nine precious works from his collection. He would believe it when he saw it. The smugglers had instructed him to book a room at the Hotel Schweizerhof in Zurich and to wait there for the call. But the suspense was becoming unbearable. He extinguished his cigarette and paced the narrow hotel room. What if something went wrong, or worse? What if the deal was no more than a cruel hoax? He replayed the telephone conversation that had set this waiting game in motion, a phone call that had shattered the quiet of a Montreux evening three months earlier. Ferenc Hadvani? inquired a voice with a distinct Budapestian inflection. Igen, acknowledged Ferenc. I have some news of interest to you, said the caller without preamble. Who is this? That's not important. 
I'm merely delivering a message regarding some works of art that may have belonged to you. Should I continue? Ferenc's stomach lurched and his heart skipped a beat. Lucia looked up from her book, sensing a change in her husband's demeanor, but Ferenc held up a finger to his lips. He gripped the telephone receiver. What about them? Where are they? You have one week to get to Budapest and bring Swiss francs with you if you want to get your hands on them again. Don't contact the authorities. I'll call again tomorrow night. And with that, the line went dead. <laughs> I loved that scene because it's so, it is so dramatic. And then it also makes you really remember how many works of art were caught up in the shuffle of, especially after the Second World War. Yes. And it also reminds us so much that, as you mentioned, art isn't just art. It's not just a painting on a wall. It has so many histories and lives that are built up in the fact that it, art can be on a museum wall. It can be in a collection for decades or centuries, that it holds such deep history within itself. And I love that you really help reveal so much of that history so I want to thank you so much. This book was such a pleasure to read. And again, absolutely. And again, I want to remind everyone that you can buy a copy of the book today. We have the link so you can easily do so right now in the fortune cookie in the Fireside app. And Lillian, before we end, I would love to do just a few little rapid fire questions with you, if you don't mind. <laughs> They'll be easy, but I do have to say you can be as quick as you'd like, but I have also had authors in the past would like to, uh, you know, extol a little bit more on their choices. So please feel free to do either. So okay. who is your favorite artist besides Courbet and besides yourself? <laughs> oh my God. I would be last on that list, but oh. <laughs> um, you know, I am the most art lover. I, I love, let's say, Rodin, for me, Rodin is the sculpture par excellence, sculptor par excellence. Yes. Look at his work and I, and, and I melt. I just don't know how he manages to make marble look like flesh, living flesh. It's just incredible. Then I love the, the huge sort of very round, difficult works of Anselm Kiefer, and I also yes. love the paintings of uh, Tamara de Lempica. Do you know her? I do. I love her as well. All, all three of these choices are fantastic, by the way. <laughs> I, I hope you do a, a podcast on her one day. I would love to. She has long been on my list. I just need to make it happen. So what about your favorite recent book that you've read? Hmm. Oh, I just, I just read... Um, uh, what did I read? I read the uh, the Lincoln Highway. Do you know that oh, one? Oh yes, yes, by the man who wrote um, Oh, a Gentleman in Moscow. Yes, is that right? yes, yes. Uh, wow, wow, is he amazing? My goodness, I couldn't put that book down. And it's so different from A Gentleman in Moscow. It's Amor Towels is his name. That's it. Thank you for. I knew the name was in the back of my head. I loved A Gentleman in Moscow, but I have oh. not read this one yet. So you totally different. Me. But the guy is, is just a remarkable author. Okay, that is adding to my list, my library <laughs> list today. What are your favorite time periods in history? I think it's it's this period that I wrote about, sort of like um, late 19th century and early 20th century. In fact, I'm 
uh, a quarter of the way through my second novel, oh, also takes place in Paris, also historical fiction, and also around that time frame. I just think it was a time of such change and turmoil, it, 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 and like an opening, an opening into a totally new world from the old world to the new world. I think that was the cusp of it. Oh, absolutely. And well, I'll be really excited to see this second novel whenever you are completed with it. Thank you. <laughs> if you could describe your writing style in a few words, say three words, what would you say? Hmm. I would say not, not overly verbose. Mm -hmm. um, I like to describe visually because probably I'm an artist. I love to, to, to describe things visually, but without going into too much detail. And I like to keep my readers hanging at the end of each chapter. <laughs> oh, I like that. And you do, you do a very good job of that. Last question. What is your hidden talent? <laughs> I should put some music on because it's actually belly dancing to Middle Eastern music because I lived in Israel for a while and I was even part of a belly dance troupe. <laughs> oh, I love that, it. That was more more terrifying, I think, than, than copying uh, L'Origine du Monde. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I did an, um, an Indian dance course maybe oh. almost 10 years ago. It was more Bollywood, but they did also incorporate some belly dancing into it. And I agree with you. I think I was very intimidated <laughs> at the outset to, to move in those particular ways and to highlight my midriff was something I was not used to. So I applaud, I I applaud your bravery and uh, your dedication. That's fantastic. Thank you. Well, Lillian, this has been such a pleasure and I really appreciate you jumping on Fireside to talk with us today. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Jennifer. It's been my pleasure. And like I said, I really feel like I hit the jackpot speaking with you. So thank you oh, very much. Oh, my goodness. Vice versa. Absolutely. And again, thank you to our audience members here on Fireside. If you have not already bought a copy of Lillian's book, please do so. And also please tune in to the Art Curious podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We just finished out our 10th season this week, and then we will be having our 11th season premiering in April. So you can find that wherever you listen. So thank you everyone for tuning in today and we will see you next time. And thank you, Lillian, most of all for being here. Au revoir, merci beaucoup. <laughs> De rien. See everyone later. <laughs> Thank you for tuning into this bonus episode recorded live on Fireside and featuring author Lillian Milgram. We've only got a couple of months until our new season of our show. So until then, stay healthy, stay in touch with me, and stay curious.